Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. We begin 2021 with a conversation with Colorado Senator Carrie Donovan. She's a leader who will be shaping events in her state and showing many other Democrats around the country the way forward in a divided nation. Longtime listeners may remember Carrie from when I previously interviewed her and her colleague Brittany Peterson, two of the Fab Five women who flipped the Colorado Senate in 2018. Carrie is a two-term member of the Colorado Senate. She's a rancher and former member of the Vail Town Council. She's a leader in the Senate and chairs the Agriculture and Natural Resources Committee. She's focused on water, climate, and broadband access. I think she's got some great insights into how we heal the divide and talk to rural voters and meet voters where they are. Enjoy our conversation. Colorado Senator Carrie Donovan, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I want to start by one, wishing you a happy new year, and hopefully 2021 will be better than 2020 was. What do you foresee uh, in the year ahead for your state and uh, your role in the state Senate leading Colorado? I think we all need 2021 to be a better year. So I uh, thanks for the well wishes and, you know, fingers crossed that that 2021 looks a lot better. And I think it will. Uh, We know that the economic recovery was tied very closely to the health of our hospital system and of our COVID-19 recovery, and we finally have a light at the end of the tunnel. Vaccines have been underway for weeks now in Colorado and across the country, and so I think as we see more vaccines rolled out in the winter months, if people continue to do what's the best for the community of sticking to those good behaviors of wearing a mask, keeping six feet of distance, all those things that we've all made a commitment to, I really think that we'll start to see an economic turnaround that will be tied to, of course, a downturn in the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm hopeful that by the 4th of July, you know, we're really starting to feel a return to normal. Let's hope. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. All those things. As you're, all as, the things. All those things and more. As a leader of the state Senate, how, do you, how are you thinking about what your priorities are going to be when there are just so many needs to address and issues uh, to work on? How do you sort of think about what's going to be the priority for the state legislature? It's a hard question, to be honest with you, because it is, it is a really difficult position to be in right now where you feel like you should be in a position to solve these issues. But this is a problem at such scale that I really hope that the federal government continues to lead on this because we do need investments in the billions 
um, you know, and in the hundreds of billions to recover from this issue. Now, I think the state can play an important role. One, we can continue to be that pressure on the federal government to act. Two, I think we can make sure that the government is doing everything it can to make sure that dollars are getting to our small businesses, uh, communities of color, those that have been most impacted by this. Because I think what we've frustratingly seen from the federal government in both of their COVID um, response packages is a focus on some of the bigger institutions, the guys that can't afford a six-figure lobbyist. So I think it'll be important for the state to make sure that we don't forget about, you know, Main Street USA, because we know that that's the heart and soul of communities across the, the state. And it's really those local businesses that provide soul food for us. So we have to make sure that they don't get lost in the cracks. But the challenge is a real one. Um, Colorado has decided that we will gavel in what would be our first day of session, which would be the 13th of January. So just, you know, a few um, weeks. And we think that we will gavel in, do our constitutional obligations, and then delay for a full month before we start doing I reconvene under hopeful safer circumstances for our staff and the public to start looking at what legislation we can run. But that's a tough decision, right? Like everyone is in need of critical help today and we're still making decisions around health and safety concerns. So it's a really hard time to be uh, in public office, to hear the phone calls every day asking for help and then not always having a very clear pathway of what that help is. Yeah, and I imagine your district specifically is in need of help because it's a tourism, in addition to being a rural area, it's also a tourism-dependent area. So it must have been hit hard, especially those small businesses, by the pandemic. Absolutely. We were hit hard and we were hit first. So... My district has a lot of different personalities, but one of their personalities is the ski resort business. And so last March, the ski resorts actually took the lead and, and turned their lifts off. Never in my lifetime, and I grew up in a ski community, I've never seen the lifts shut down. And we turned our lifts off before even the governor was asking businesses to take that step because we saw how impactful this was going to be. And I was getting phone calls from constituents and from friends that were trying to figure out how do you bury someone in the time of COVID before COVID was being felt by a lot of the rest of the state. So it was incredibly tragic and incredibly real very quickly. And so we lost that spring um, business cycle, which is so important to the the mountain communities. It's kind of when everyone actually makes their money. It's the equivalent of Black Friday, right? When businesses finally get into the black and make their profit. That's kind of what that springtime in the ski resorts are. And then the other uh, tourism-focused industries that make up my district, you know, you think of White River Rafting, 
fly fishing, all of these small businesses really were hit hard by COVID. And now we're seeing a spike in cases and increased in shutdowns that are hitting the exact same places that got hit in March. So we're looking at a long-term recovery. Some of the legislation and policy that I would like to make sure that we pass, I really want to increase the speediness of the recovery so that we're looking at pre-COVID levels in a time of hopefully, you know, four to five years, not seven to 10. But our current projections right now are looking at, you know, a six, seven, eight year recovery. And that's, that's hard. That's hard to say out loud. That's really hard to say out loud. That is, it's hard. Well, it's hard to hear as well. Can you talk a little bit about your district? Because I think you bring an interesting perspective coming from that district and, and sort of also your life outside of politics, as you try to legislate and try to maybe bridge some of the divides that, that we're seeing in our country? Yeah, so, you know, my daytime job is I run my family's ranch. We're a very, very small operation. We raise cattle for beef, and we have, uh, you know, a number of gardens that we sell produce to chefs and restaurants um, up and down the Vale Valley. There weren't a lot of restaurants or chefs buying produce this past summer. We really had to uh, reset our expectations and kind of have a new set of goals for what the ranch was going to look like for the summer. We had been pursuing hosting weddings and special events, and obviously that like business development goal just was eliminated overnight. But my story is not the unique one. You know, this is the same experience that I heard from so many of my friends. I had friends who had to close their the doors of their business permanently. I have friends who had an incredibly successful event production company uh, and that have put on some of the biggest events that people across Colorado would recognize as something that they have an Instagram photo from. They had to shut their doors. Friends that were trying to figure out how to do the best thing for their employees and still keep the business afloat. You know, so restaurant owners that were trying to feed their employees plus their families, but still make sure that they could pay the rent. I mean, it was, it was heartbreaking and inspirational at the same moment to see how people responded to COVID. And then we lost people. We lost one of the, I just read a story yesterday of kind of a looking back of the year, and they highlighted the loss of one of my family friends who was an Indy 500 race car driver, was a daredevil at every turn of his life, and was uh, ran one of the most well-known small hotels in Vail and was just one of those larger-than-life figures. And he succumbed to COVID. It just, it didn't make sense for someone who has raced around the Indy track to be taken away from us by an invisible disease that was on our doorstep before we even knew it. So it's, it's been a tough year. And to see how other aspects 
of rural Colorado responded, where a lot of the times that same narrative of rural America feeling like they aren't always elevated because they don't have the loudest voice, right? To live in rural America, particularly to be someone who is a proud rancher or farmer, often means that you are working from every moment there is daylight and filling in the evening hours with, a, you know, doing the books. You don't always have time to advocate to make sure that you're in the CARES Act or to make sure that the latest bill that the state legislature is running, you can apply for as a sole proprietor, as an operator of a small ranch. So I think we, we have to continue to make sure that the people that don't have voices in our government because they don't have the privilege of access are the ones that we are most lifting up in the coming months so that COVID doesn't continue to make the haves and the have-nots be further apart. And unfortunately, that's exactly what we're seeing right now. I think that's an incredibly powerful summary of some of the, the very real impacts life and death impacts that this uh, disease has had. I want to talk a little bit about reaching out to those rural voters and those underrepresented communities that Democratic Party has struggled to communicate with those voters. What, what in your view, can the party do better to ha- start having those conversations, bridge those divides, and make sure that those voices do get represented in policy? You work harder. I I know that we have had multiple conferences around this topic and so many thought leaders that have weighed in on this, but you show up and you work harder. You need to be present in rural America. You need to see what they're experiencing and you need to hear their stories and you need to offer authentic and real solutions. I think that most people are very good at smelling BS, right? And people know an inauthentic person when they show up. That is even more so in small towns, rural Colorado, rural America, because they're so tightly knit. I was just at one of my favorite restaurants in my hometown a couple nights ago, and I was reminded of this. We were all sitting socially distanced at the bar trying to catch up, and the conversation was just around who in the community we had lost track of, who might be surfing whose couch, who had to leave town, right? We, we care for each other. We, we create families because many of us arrive in these communities without family. Or our roots are so long that there isn't a separation between who we are and who the town is. And so I think for rural America to win the trust, to win someone's vote, to have them believe in you, that you're going to go be their voice, go work for them, you have to work hard and show up. So my district leans Republican. It's not a half and half. It's not in Colorado. We like to talk about the 30-30-30, the mix of unaffiliated or independents versus Republicans and Democrats. My district actually leans Republican. 
when I first ran the office, I won by less than 2%, right? It was a really close election where we traveled. We were constantly on the road, left, left our campaign office in the dark, came back in the dark, right? We were on the road in communities. And my district is larger than New Jersey. So you get in the car and you drive, and you go to people's doors, and you go to their kitchen tables, and you go to the coffee counters. In re-election, I won by over 20%. And that was, I believe, because these people saw me standing up for their issues. Not for what was trendy, not for what the hot topic was at the time, but we fought for broadband. We tried to make health care better. We worked on making sure there was support for when a coal mine closed. We worked on things like uh, like cottage foods, uh, changing the laws to make it work for small businesses. I worked on hunting bills. You know, I, I talked about things that came from the district. And I, I think that showed with that they sent me back with a much larger margin than they sent me there originally. And and so sometimes it does mean that you perhaps aren't perfectly aligned with the, you know, the lines of the party that are coming out of D.C. or, you know, the the party politics that may come out of the more metro or more liberal areas. But I think I've shown that I can that I can be a progressive leader while still being very attached to a rural county, right? Like, I can run a bill on climate change and still be a rancher. I can work on passing a public option, a very progressive healthcare idea, while still making sure it's going to work for a small business. I can, you know, I can go fishing and hunting and still work on wildlife protection bills, right? So you just have to be authentic. I have a lot of questions, but one of my, <laughs> I was that the statement that your district is bigger than the state of New Jersey is a mind blowing one. How do you physically stay in contact with your constituents when your, when your area is so large and you have a day job of running a ranch? Yeah. I mean, I think you have to make that a priority that you're going to show up and you're going to be there. And I try to show up and be there for the things that are meaningful and not just the things that, you know, might get you a picture. So I am more likely to say yes to a community barbecue than a community parade, right? Like I want to talk to people. I want to hear their problems. I also put my cell phone on every piece of mail I've ever sent out and every business card I've ever handed out has my cell phone number on it. So people can call me. They don't call an office. They don't have to email me. They can just text me or call. And those, those phone calls happen. And they happen uh, every day of the year, every hour of the day. And I pick up the phone. Now, sometimes those can be 10-minute conversations. Sometimes those can be hour-long conversations. But I, I very deeply believe in the role of public service as the driver of public office. You are sent 
with the trust of voters who give you your vote, which is a big thing, right? When they mark your name on the ballot and they fill in that square next to your name, that is incredibly powerful and it's an important thing to honor. And so, yeah, when the district is, you know, six hours of driving to get to that community, you get there. I will also say that rural rural Colorado is very understanding that you can't be there all the time, right? They get it. They get it. Just like they know that they might have to drive a couple hours to go to a big box to go Christmas shopping, they know the realities of what it is, you know, what it means to live in rural America. So there is a lot of understanding and forgiveness. And I think, you know, the time of COVID has shown us that we can get together remotely and still have these same connections. So I think going forward, I'll have much more of a blended approach of, of having, you know, uh, virtual town halls, but that will never replace the showing up in town, you know, and, and sharing, a, sharing a Coors or a cup of coffee with someone. So I want to talk about the, that idea of having these town halls, virtual town halls, because broadband access is a major issue and it's been something that you've been working on for a long time. Uh, I should note that you, you told me that uh, you drove your truck to a, a good spot where you can get cell phone service uh, in order to have this interview. So clearly it's something you're dealing with on a regular basis. What are some ways that we bridge this digital divide and create access, especially now that we're in a post-COVID new reality with the need to connect online? Emergency and crisis show the cracks in our system, right? And so this pandemic has certainly shown the cracks in our network foundation. When we have asked people to access their health care via the internet, when we've asked them to learn how to do calculus via the internet, when we've asked them to apply for grants via the internet, and all of a sudden people say, well, that's nice, but my internet is sparse at best and non-existent in some cases. So I think this, what is not a new conversation, I've been working on it for six years. There were those that were working on it before me of connecting all of America, making sure that every corner of our square state has broadband is even just more elevated. And And I'm glad to see that. I'm glad that the stories that we've been telling for six years to our colleagues that don't even think about how they're going to host a virtual town hall are now resonating even more because they're hearing them with a new level of urgency because they're surrounded with this elevated stress of the pandemic. So... If we're turning the corner. I truly believe that as we look for what this pandemic will mean for changing the future of our country in so many ways, I think one of them will be this conversation around broadband and the importance of connectivity. So in the past six years, we've gotten around 
six and a half million dollars towards broadband investment. Not a big number when it actually comes to investment numbers. In the extraordinary session that the Colorado legislature had in early December, we put $20 million towards technology grants just for schools. That's exciting. That's great. And hopefully when we return to session, that number will start to look like $80 million, $90 million, maybe even $100 million of a one-time investment towards building out broadband across Colorado. And also, the conversation has brought into not just access to infrastructure. Do you have that line in the ground to plug in? That's important. The other important conversation is equity. Are you in a neighborhood that might have a line underground that might provide gig access, but you can't afford a computer or you can't afford that monthly subscription? So both of those issues have been elevated, and I'm confident that we'll be able to tackle both of them when the Colorado General Assembly reconvenes. That would be, that would be a great model, I think, for so many other places that are struggling with this very issue. Can I ask, so you've you talked about working on climate change and healthcare, equity and broadband. Those are not issues that normally resonate in uh, rural areas where there's a, there's a real sense of a libertarian streak from the far left and the far right. How do you, how do you sort of square those, working on those issues with maybe your constituents' concerns about big government solutions to these problems? I mean, you almost have to have a libertarian streak to call yourself like a Colorado local. <laughs> like it is, it is absolutely part of the state's culture is this libertarian, independent, you know, Western spirit. But the conversation can still be very much about empowering people to do what they want, right? But without, without a broadband connection in the ground, a town can't even chart their pathway forward. They can't decide if they want to be, you know, the next wine country destination or the next small manufacturing hub if they can't tell that either of those new futures that they want to attract can't connect to the rest of the world via Internet. And you can also certainly highlight some of the very important health and wellness aspects of broadband. You know, it might not be about being able to have an Etsy account or upload your TikTok video. It can be about 911 redundancy, right? It can be about how a search and rescue team coordinates their efforts of trying to find the hunter who got a little bewildered and turned around in the hills. So, so there's certainly so many ways to talk about the importance of broadband, and it doesn't just have to be we're from the government and we're here to help, right, which doesn't always resonate in some communities. They want to say, oh, you're from the government? Please go away, <laughs> right? But any hospital will say that they can't do their jobs without a robust connection and a redundant connection, 
which is the important but less sexy conversation around broadband. It's great if you get one line into a community, but then as soon as that road grader comes through to work on that dirt road and grabs the line by accident, right, suddenly you don't have broadband anymore. So we have to talk about both. But, for example, there's a hospital out on the eastern plains of Colorado, not my district, but certainly a place I care about, and that hospital has to tell their staff to turn the Wi-Fi connection off on their phones when they need to download MRI images. They download the image, and then they announce over the intercom that the staff can go back online again. That doesn't seem to be a very functioning society. And how about climate change? I mean, certainly Colorado's being impacted by climate change and the Biden administration will hopefully be moving forward on a number of initiatives around it. How, how are you approaching climate change in your, in your district and in your state? When I did a tour through my district of my seven counties, various town halls throughout each, throughout the various communities in 2019, I heard at every single stop by someone raising their hand and saying, you need to go work on climate change. That was the first time that that had ever happened. And so while I've always had climate change in the back of my mind, because as a rancher, you can't be more connected to climate than if you're someone that works the soil, right? We don't always talk about it as climate change, but we know how things have changed from season to season, micro and macro trends. But suddenly everyone across my district was saying, go work on climate change. It was really interesting to me. And so that's what I did. I went and carried a bill that was about data collection. And then it also instructed the Air Quality and Control Commission, which I always like reminding people was established under the Nixon administration, right? That the Air Quality Control Commission start to promulgate rules of how to reduce greenhouse gases in Colorado to meet overall goals. Now that bill is currently in court because it's not being followed as aggressively as I certainly think it should be. But I think it's interesting to note that a rural elected official following the desires of her rural constituents, I was the one who passed the most aggressive climate change bill in Colorado. Now, did it get a bunch of attention? Was it the lead story? No, because that's that's not exactly how you do stuff in, in rural parts of the country, right? We do the work and expect it to be followed through. We're not, I don't like doing stuff for headlines, but I, but I don't, I don't think, I think people too often dismiss rural parts of the country as conservative or not in tune with, you know, the big conversations or the big ideas of the time. It, I would say it's often just the opposite. You just have to work a little bit harder and listen a little bit more closely, and you'll hear them pushing for the exact same reason. Maybe not always holding a Democratic flag or maybe not always, you know, presenting the the latest white paper from the big think tank that everyone else cites, but they just often put it in more everyday terms 
so when you carry those everyday stories and everyday thoughts into the building to work on policy, the policy you can produce can be important and impactful. That gives me a lot of hope. Uh, it's a good way to, to start a new year talking about how we can address, obviously, one of the biggest issues we face uh, in a way that brings everybody along. We, we talked previously on a previous episode uh, a little bit about your path into uh, to public service, but uh, that was relatively right after you got elected. What's been the most surprising thing to you about serving in the state legislature or the state senate? And has it lived up to what you expected? And, you know, what do you see as your uh, political future? There's a couple questions in there, but uh, you can choose (laughs) choose which direction you want to go. These past six years have been some of the most remarkable of my life. And they've been remarkably good and remarkably bad, but nonetheless remarkable, right? And that's a really special thing to be able to say that for six years, I've been on this incredible journey. I've been surprised at how mean politics has become. It is very combative and very dehumanizing. And what's hard about that dehumanizing part of it is we are dealing with very human issues and we are all humans. That is what makes up politics, right? So I am still surprised at the phone calls I get, at the emails that come through, at the conversations I have with colleagues, that we have lost sight that we are humans trying to help humans. Now, everyone says, well, you must have developed a thick skin. I don't think I've developed a thick skin, and I hope that I actually don't. I hope that I don't come callous to these conversations, because callousness, you start to lose feeling. But I have learned to process it much quicker. <laughs> so I can, read, I can read a very, very mean email and kind of feel it, process it, and then move on, because I have really important stuff to do. I really want to keep doing this work. I have two years left. I know those are going to go by in a blink of an eye. I know that I'm going to still have things left that I want to accomplish because particularly with COVID redirecting us, and rightfully so, I'm going to have some hills that I have yet to climb when my two years comes up. And I will... I will tell you something that I have come to realize just in recent months. There are so many ways to change the world, right? And that's one of the reasons I'm doing this. I want to leave the world better than when I started this. I want to honor what it means, that legacy of public service, right? You're supposed to go in and make things better for the people who asked you to serve them. 
And there's lots of different ways to do that. You can lead a nonprofit that lifts up those that need to be lifted up, right? You can you can champion a, a special interest and make sure that you are the voice that doesn't let people forget that we need to still hammer on lowering the cost of health care. But what I love about elected office is being responsible to voters. And there is nothing else like that in the world where there are however many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people that that you must represent. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to make every single one of them happy every day. And as our country finds ourselves in this very trying time of you, you have to belong to one team or another, right? We don't give a lot of space right now for people to not either be fiercely Democratic or fiercely Republican. It is still just a privilege to know that when I'm reading a bill or trying to write an amendment or looking at the budget or having a meeting with, you know, a a group of, of the local chambers or a bunch of teachers that asked me to step out in the hallway for a quick conversation, that that's who I'm responsible to. So I really want to stay in public office. There's just, there's nothing like it. It's hard as heck. There are some days that I walk out of the Capitol and I felt like I lost at everything I tried that day. But I wake up the next morning invigorated to go back into the people's building and try again, try a different idea, push a different button, be more creative, work harder, do another phone call, write another email, and see if maybe you get a win that day. And I've had big wins, and that's remarkable, too, to be able to look back and say, even though no one may ever know that I was associated with that, I know that I made that change, and I know that I made someone's life better. It's a cool job. It's a really cool job. Carrie Donovan, you just made a case that uh, politics is an honorable profession. So I'm, uh, it's a great way to kick off the new year <laughs> by having you uh, on this podcast. I want to I wanna thank you for being a New Deal leader that we all look to for inspiration and ideas and a real commitment to, to public leadership. And I wish you the very best in 2021 and beyond. Same to you. I mean, democracy takes all of us. This country needs all of us right now, striving for a better tomorrow. But I have absolute faith that groups like the New Deal and leaders across America at all levels of government and all levels of the community will will lead this country forward. And we will look back on this time as one of challenge and one of learning, but one that we all emerge stronger from. All right. I'm knocking on wood again <laughs> that, 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 that your prophecy becomes true. And thank you. And I look forward to uh, seeing you hopefully at a New Deal conference in person uh, once we've all got the vaccine very soon. 
Yes. Here's to that, and here's to a great 2021. Thank you, Carrie. Take care. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. <laughs>